Welcome to Southern Sense Talk Radio with your host, the radio chick, Annie Ubellis. Join Annie on Tuesdays and Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time with an open chat room full of her regulars. And yes, you can even call in. Call 917-889-3675. That's 917-889-3675 to be a part of the action on the phone line. Not able to listen live? Not a problem. You can always catch Annie, the radio chick, and Southern Sense Talk Radio podcast in archives at southern-sense.com. So sit back, relax, and enjoy Southern Sense the right way. Welcome back to another adventure here on Southern Sense. You're listening to us on Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeart, Facebook, YouTube, all the heck with it. You know what I'm going to say. Go to the name of the show, put a dash in the middle, southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most is through you, Chick Annie, along with my clever, courageous, and colorful co-host, Curtis E.S. <laughs> Bennett. Good afternoon, Curtis. <laughs> Hey, I always blush when you say that. (laughs) 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 We got a exciting show today. We got yeah. A lot of people do have. I was going to say a lot of people do have um, nervousness when they're you know talking to a large crowd or audience. So that's what I guess the (laughs) courageous part come in. Oh, man. I want to welcome those that are listening in. I have up on the other computer the Facebook and YouTube video playing. I want to welcome those that are showing up inside the studio as well as the chat room. We're going to have a great show. We've got three fantastic guests. Uh, Chris McDaniel, who is running for U.S. Senate out of the state of Mississippi, will be joining us, followed by Burgess Owens. And he's got a new book out called Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism. He'll be joining it. That book is released just today. You couldn't get it yesterday, but today you can get that book. It is now up and available. And then we're going to close out the show uh, with – Oh, good Lord. Mark Reed, who is uh, challenging uh, Congressman Brad Sherman in the 30th Congressional District of California. Uh, So that's going to be very, very interesting. We're going to have a lot of fun. It is seven days, one week to the midterm elections. I went and early voted yesterday with my husband. So if you got early voting out there and it's available, take advantage of it because we went with early voting. You think you would not have a line or anything? We did. And when we left the voting booth, the line was twice as long as when we walked in. So beware that you are going to have waits, even if you are doing early voting. People are really invigorated about this election. So that said, Curtis, uh, each and every show our listeners know that we start off with a dedication to a fallen hero. And today's dedication is going to go out to police officer Charles White, of Round Rock Police Department, Texas. His end of watch was Friday, April 27th of this year. And this is from Ariana Garcia from The Statesman. And she wrote, Those who knew Round Rock Police Officer Charles White's 
remembered him as a kind man with a great sense of humor and a big mustache grin. Fellow officers, friends, and family lovingly recalled memories of the fallen officer and the effect he had on their lives and community during a memorial service at the Shoreline Church just outside of Austin. Whites, a 19-year veteran of the Round Rock Police Department, was directing traffic around an accident on February 25th at Interstate 35 near East Bowman Road when he was struck by a car. He died two months later on Friday, April 27th, from his injuries. He is the first Round Rock police officer to die in the line of duty in the department's 70-plus year history. Raul Martinez, 65, and from Kentucky, was charged with intoxication assault, causing serious bodily injury in White's death. Round Rock Police Chaplain Don Dye, who officiated, began the service by saying, we have chosen this to be a celebration of life because Charles was a happy guy. With his casket elevated on the church stage in front of them, speakers one by one recalled White's love of the outdoors and scuba diving. He once was manager of Wilderness Whitewater Supply and that he liked to play classical music in his patrol car. Police Chief Alan Banks said White's 63 loved being around community, added that many residents have reached out to say how White's made a difference in their lives. Charles was the same whether he was wearing the uniform or not, he said. He treated all citizens he had come in contact with with dignity, respect, and with kindness. White served as a patrol officer, field training officer, and hostage negotiator on the department's SWAT team. Banks said that Whites would always try to de-escalate situations and had a way of connecting with people, making him a great crisis negotiator. Holding back tears, he addressed White's wife, Connie. Your husband made the ultimate sacrifice, doing what he loved. He is a true hero. Among those who spoke to the estimated 2,000 people in the church were three fellow officers, Lynn Carmichael worked with Whites for 17 years, some of that time on a SWAT team. She said Whites was known as Super Chuck and most interesting man in the world. He was a fearless adventurer, she said, had an incredible worth ethic and true desire to make others and an attention to detail like no other. The crowd laughed as she recalled how Whites would frequently show up to training with a bag of nuts and carried a wallet that would rival any woman's purse. A SWAT tactic called the Flying Chucky was named for him following a training exercise, she said, after he launched himself in the air and latched onto an officer. She said a passerby had seen Whites directing traffic shortly before he was struck by a car and reported that he seemed very happy, almost dancing as he worked. Officer Josh Chadney, called White a brother and a friend and said he always had a smile on his face. No matter what, Charles was always there. Charles is and always will be a fond memory for me and the police department. Chadney shared an old scuba photo of White's with long hair. He looked as if he belonged in Woodstock, he said. White's would guide youth to a better path, said Round Rock Police Chaplain Jerry Lyle, who was a friend of White's for 11 years. He cared for them. He noted Whites had served a 12-hour shift before he directed traffic on the day of his death. After the memorial, 
White's casket was carried by fellow officers outside to the church lawn, where full law enforcement honors were performed. Bagpipes played Amazing Grace as guests watched tearfully. A procession then carried the officer's body back to Beck Funeral Home on RM 620, but made first a detour through Round Rock. Police cars from as far away as Amarillo took part in the procession. Hundreds of people lined North May Street and watched silently as the procession went through downtown. Former Round Rock City Council member Carlos Salinas, with his hand over his heart, was one of hundreds who watched the procession pass. I think all of Brown Rock is grieving today for Officer Whites and his family, he said. We are here to better understand the difficulties police face doing their jobs day in and day out. Several people standing at the corners and on sidewalks along the street knew Whites. According to Sonia McMasters, the precinct chairwoman of the Republican Party in Round Rock, she said that 18 years ago, Whites came to her house when she needed to file a protective order against her ex-husband. He was the most humble guy that night. He kept on calming me, she said. I never forgot it. Round Rock Fire Department Battalion Chief James Goussard, also standing along North May Street, said he worked with Whites years ago. He was very gentle, Goussard said, very kind and out of his way to be nice, putting himself in somebody else's shoes. And finally, from the Round Rock, Texas, dot government. Officer Charles M. Whites, Jr. served Round Rock Police Department for 19 years. He was a patrol officer, field training officer, and SWAT negotiator. Prior to his service, he earned a bachelor's in psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. When he wasn't working, he loved spending time outdoors, hiking or working on his old truck. He was known for his love of classical music and his mustache smile. Friends and family called him the most interesting man in the world. In recognition of his sacrifice in the line of duty, Officer Whites posthumously received a Star of Texas Award from Governor Greg Abbott at the Capitol on September 11, 2018. His call sign of A-153 was retired from use by the department by Chief Allen Banks. Today's show is dedicated to Officer White. It is also dedicated to all the brave men and women that serve as first responders. Be they law enforcement, firefighters, or emergency services. We also dedicate it to them, to the brave men and women that serve in our military from the birth of the nation through today and into the future. We dedicate this to them, a song, Amazing Grace. May God bless each and every one. My fears be 
On Blog Talk Radio, SHR Media, Lone Star Daily News, up on iTunes, Stitcher, Spreaker, all the heck with it. Just go to our website, put a dash in the middle, in between Southern Sense, put southern-sense.com. I'm your hostess with the most, just the radio chick, Annie, along with my co-host, Curtis C.S. Bennett. Curtis, while we wait for our guest to call in, oh boy, we got that caravan coming up on that southern border, and it looks yeah. like uh, Trump is doubling down. Trump is doubling down. He's not playing games. He says you are not crossing, and he's serious. Yeah, we got about 5,000 troops on the way there to augment those that are already on the scene. should be interesting. Well, 5,200 is what he's sending to augment uh, Homeland Security on the border, 5,200. And he says they're not crossing. We're going to set up tents. We're going to process everyone. But you're going back over the border. There may be a few that he may give asylum to, uh, but the vast majority looks like they're going to ship them right back home. Said, nope, we're turning you around. We'll give you some food. And the thing that they need the most, it seems like it's shoes. Most of these people are walking barefoot. But mm-hmm. you know, if you look at the clothing and if you look at the, the people that are, that are marching, most of them are, are military-aged men, ages between, you know, 16 and 35. They're well-fed, they are well-dressed, and they are well-organized. If you look at the actual pictures, you see a lot of people within the crowd there with these uh, neon-colored vests. They're the ones that are corralling the people. These are the organizers that are helping them, of course. This is a highly organized invasion. You know, they're sending these young jocks so they can come here and Mate with you know American women, excuse me, <clears throat> and then have kids, and then they have a claim to stay here because they have a child. Well, that's what I think. They're coming here for jobs. They're coming here for that's jobs. That's what they say. And that's what they there say. is no such thing as an economic refugee. Sorry, there is no such thing as an economic refugee. You are freeing from persecution of of religion. You are freeing from persecution of uh, politics. But economics, no. And I think this may be our caller in on the line. Let me bring yeah, in this so. caller, Eric 601. I do believe this is uh, Mississippi State Senator Chris McDaniel. Am I correct? You are correct. Thank you for having me. All right. Ah, we were talking about the, the mess on the southern border. Holy cow. And, and Trump is doubling down. Thank God he's doing that. Yeah. It's, 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 it has a backbone for a change. And He's down there fighting, and uh, he's doing what he needs to do because, you know, the, this, this caravan cannot be allowed to cross into uh, our border under any circumstances. No, it's an invading army, it's plain and simple. To be actually honest, it's an invading army. They may not be carrying guns, 
but it doesn't make them any less dangerous, does it? Uh, you know, it's funny. We're sitting here today, and we have a great um, way to compare past presidents here. Could you imagine how Barack Obama would have had this? How, you just broke up, Chris. Did we lose Chris? Uh, no, Chris, I can still imagine. With us? I think It'll we just lost our, our guest. Yeah. But I would say uh, that Chris, Obama would welcome you. If you want to try to call back in. I'm sorry, Chris. I was just trying to tell Chris that we cannot hear him, so if he can try to please call back in. Yeah, and oh. get a better spot for signal, yeah. Yeah. But Obama he's, would welcome we these got, guys. He's gone. He's yeah. going to probably call back. Up oh, here we go. Looks like he's called back in. All right, Chris, you back All with right. us. I'm back here. Yeah, and evidently Mitch McConnell heard me and cut off the signal. Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm back. <laughs> you are not a fan of Mitch McConnell, are you? <laughs> I saw that when I was doing my homework for you last night, and I had to crack up. You know, I'm. I, I'm not a fan of this either, but, you know, there's two things I do have to applaud him for, standing strong on Kavanaugh, and when he was approached and uh, accosted in the restaurant, how he handled it with class and dignity. That I do have to handle. When I disagree well, with him, yeah. I will go hands down on him. So yeah, you know, it's funny. Every, it, yeah, every so often, and it's, it's a shame, but he, he does something right, and but there's an old saying in the South, you know, we uh, we don't applaud a dog for barking. That's what dogs do. We don't applaud a, uh, a bird for flying. That's what birds do. And Republicans are willing to fight again. So it's kind of a weird situation we're in when we finally see Mitch do something that's conservative. And we, we do applaud him. But that doesn't make up for all the other bad decisions he's made in the last 34 years. No, no, it doesn't. It doesn't. Now, you are running for Senate out of Mississippi. And this is interesting because I've never actually paid much attention to how you guys run elections down there. You're going not to a general election on the 6th. You are going into a primary, and the primary is not party-affiliated. It's nonpartisan. Explain, because there's four of you running for this seat. That's right. It's a very rare circumstance because Senator Cochran stepped down in the middle of his term, and you might recall I challenged percent. We were at 49.7% or whatever, and he came back three weeks later, and he's Democrat to achieve uh, victory. So what happened is we knew he was going to serve a short period of time and then step down, and that way the establishment gets to hand-select their person. But that's exactly what they did. So what he created was what's called a jungle primary. Here's how it works. Four candidates, nonpartisan. The top two will advance into a runoff three weeks later. So we'll have the first election night of the sixth, and then three weeks later we'll have the final runoff night. Now, what also confused me is Cindy Hyde-Smith is already a senator in the state of Mississippi. So why is she in this race? Well, she was appointed to that position by the establishment. You see, the Mitch McConnell reached down and found a lifelong Democrat, Cindy Hyde-Smith, uh, a person who voted for Hillary Clinton, Cindy Hyde-Smith, a person who was a federal lobbyist before she became a Democrat state senator from Mississippi, uh, Cindy Hyde-Smith. And what happened is they appointed her because they knew they could control her. And so she's um, one of the four in this race. She's attempting to hold on to the appointment, and we are attempting to uh, take over the seat. So she was appointed to replace Cochran. So this is the election then to either replace her or put her back in then? Well, essentially, yes. What it is, because she's an interim, she's only been there about six months. And so what's happened is 
the, the contest here is to decide who will fulfill the remainder of Senator Cochran's six-year term, and there are only two years left in that term. So basically, you're going to see uh, a person emerge from this contest that has to run for re-election again in just two years. Mm. Well, it's going to be interesting, you know, because I was going through your website and reading some of the stuff, and uh, <laughs> I had a laugh because I was reading where your self-reflection was. He says, I'm a Taft, Goldwater, and Reagan Republican. Reagan is the reason why I'm sitting here today. His leadership was something that mesmerized me. My party has gone yeah. from Reagan, the greatest communicator in my generation, to Mitch McConnell. <laughs> and I loved it. Who haven't been able to put two sentences together. <laughs> well, we, I we know. have seen the shift of, of the Republican Party. Well, you know, it's funny. It sounds a bit harsh. I recognize that. And I don't mean – I'm not trying to be offensive there. I'm trying to state a truth, and here it is. Our party has a wonderful platform. Anytime we're talking about constitutionalism and liberty, we're talking about the very essential American experiment, store this American experiment. Now, when we run as conservatives, we win. When we fight as conservatives, we win. But it's when we start compromising is when we begin to lose. And unfortunately, you have to communicate these ideas with an articulate vision for the future. And Ronald Reagan did that, and he won two landslide victories. Mitch McConnell is not able to articulate in that fashion, and there are many Republicans that simply talk in talking points all the time, and we wonder why we're struggling. I promise you this. If you elect people that can articulate the message, young people will gravitate toward us again, and we'll have a successful party for a long time. But if we keep going down the same path, uh, we're just going to shift further and further to the left, and we ultimately become the Democrats of yesteryear, and that's a shame. And that is a shame. And you know, I've I've seen the shift in the party. As a matter of fact, um, when I showed up to volunteer to become my precinct chairperson, uh, a friend of mine, she used to be a state uh, senator, and she says, "Well, why are you doing this?" And it says, "I want to bring the Republican bar- Party back to being conservative." And she got really upset with it. And that's the problem we have with old school. We're upsetting their apple cart. We want to bring back the values that are stated in our platform. If we just adhere to the, the, the platform, we would have a conservative Republican Party, right? That's exactly right. The platform is a pretty sound platform. It's just nobody wants to fight for it. It begs the question, why do you take the time to print it if you're not going to follow it? But what happens is the lobbyists get involved in the insiders and the good old boys and their cronies, and the next thing you know, they flush the uh, platform because they're more concerned about personal power and the acquisition of money and wealth than they are fighting for the principles of our party. And so what we're looking for here are people willing to stick out their necks and fight like warriors to restore the Republican Party. If we don't restore it, how do we stop the Democrats? And, you know, the Democrats are lurching right now towards socialism. We can't chase them. We can't chase them. We have to stand in the gap and pull this country back to the right, back toward liberty and constitutionalism. And uh, unless we're strong, we can't accomplish our mission. So that's what we're trying to do is just be strong and courageous. You know, it's funny because I'm looking at some of the Democrats that are putting themselves up, and you you have some uh, military veterans showing up, and when they talk, they sound like almost like they're conservative. So I'm wondering if there's starting to be a revolution within the Democratic Party because they have gone way too left. Maybe they're seeing that they have to bring it back, otherwise the Democratic Party would be lost. Are you seeing the same thing I am? Well, uh, maybe. I think primarily, I think they are really good at playing the old incremental ball game. In other words, 
I think in their heart of hearts, they are very much in favor of socialism or at least very big government policies. And I think they realize the American people aren't quite ready for that. So they naturally move slowly to the left, slowly to the left, incrementally until they ultimately get their way. But to do that, they have to silence uh, the more radical aspects of their party, but I still believe the party as a whole is controlled by radicalism. I mean, how else can you explain Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders? These people both, were, one was completely corrupt, the other was uh, a self-admitted socialist. So um, I think the party uh, is lost. I think it's lurching uh, aggressively toward the left, and I don't think that it can be restored, at least the tradition in the traditional sense. I think we just have to defeat them at this stage. Well, it's funny because Claire McCaskill was up on Fox News, and I, I, I just wanted to barf. Um, and she, they were challenging her to name these radical, crazy Democrats, and she finally said Pelosi, Sanders. So she finally put, put the hand right on it, you know, <laughs> the pot calling the kettle black. But um, looking at your platform, you know, I love it. And one of the things you do address in your platform is the immigration situation we have here. And, yes. you know, Everyone screams build the wall, but we can't be just a solid wall. We need other things there, too. It's a combination of several factors. It's exactly right. We still need the wall, but there are other things we can do to protect that wall from incursion. Technology plays a big role. Uh, uh, People on the ground play a big role. The bottom line here is you do whatever it takes to stop illegal immigration. And people say, well, what's the big deal? The big deal is you, you cannot have unfettered illegal immigration into a welfare state. You just can't. And uh, we're to the position now, our country is $21 trillion in debt, and we know that these aliens uh, uh, take more from the public treasury than they contribute, and it's just a matter of mathematics, and uh, we just can't have it. So I'm with you. We just have to shut it down and make sure um, our, our laws are obeyed. Oh, what about the visa programs? Because if, as my friend, old friend Mike Cutler always says, you know, we've got 50 border states. Any state that has an airport, any state that has a port of entry is a border state. And our largest problem is not people coming across the borders. It's people that come in with visas and don't leave. Don't leave. Exactly right. The whole system has to be revamped. And and here's why. It sounds harsh. I understand that. But we have a social contract among American citizens. That's our social contract. And we simply cannot feed and clothe and house the rest of the world, not until we get our house in order first. And so America has to become, or our people have to become America first. And that may sound a bit problematic to some, but I don't like the idea of globalism. I don't like the idea of uh, losing United States sovereignty. I, I love what we've built here. It's the greatest country in the world, and we have to defend it. We can't defend it if our borders are porous and open. So uh, to me, it's a no-brainer. We have to take care of Americans first. Now, uh, Trump is also stirring up the, the pot today a little bit more when he said he wants to stop this uh, birthright citizenship. And originally it was meant so that slaves that were brought over here against their will could become full American citizens and be given all the rights and freedoms accorded to them in the Bill of Rights. Uh, right. But now it's been turned against us. So is he in yeah. his right to either by executive order or by legislation, to tighten that? Yeah, something needs to be done. I mean, I, I think, obviously, the, um, the the amendment has been misinterpreted over the years. If you listen to the original debates on the amendment, it was made very clear that the amendment was not meant for ambassadors and visitors into our country. Um, so something needs to be done. I hear there's going to be court challenges that are triggered, and maybe as a result of those court challenges, 
we can finally uh, narrow down this very broad interpretation of the uh, 14th Amendment. I, I just think it's been misinterpreted for a long, long time, and uh, frankly, it needs to be changed. Now, what about DACA? Now, i got to admit, because my senator is Lindsey Graham, or as I call him, Lindsey Graham. <laughs> and when he, when he first... He first got his seat. He was appointed to it by the governor. And there was a young woman that came to him, and she was just turned 18, just graduated high school, wanted to go into college, wanted to get a job and get a driver's license. That is when she found out that she was here illegally. Now, he worked with her. She went back home to her native country for a short time and then was able to come back over here and become a citizen legally. Now, it, it, it works that way. It does work. Why can't we do that yeah. with other DACAs? Well, you can. You can. There's, you know, every time we've um, approached amnesty in this country, the results have not been positive. And, you know, one of my favorite presidents is Ronald Reagan, obviously, and he attempted uh, amnesty in 86. And the uh, Democrat-controlled Congress promised him all these things they were going to accomplish, border security and a reduction in immigration uh, numbers and Basically, they do what Democrats always do. They lied and went back on their word, and we never Reagan never got the concessions that he was promised. So what, what we've learned is when you talk about amnesty, you encourage lawbreaking because it, it's, it's a signal to those individuals to come as quickly as they can across the borders. And number two, we've learned that when you condition amnesty with reform, the reform never takes place. So let's just stop talking about DACA. Let's just say no. Make it clear there's not going to be any um, DACA or amnesty granted, and let's move from there. Well, what drove me crazy is when Obama did his executive order, it was up to the age of 35. I said, wait a minute, hang on a bloody second here. If this young girl could determine at the time she turned 18 that she was not here legally and take steps, and you are now 35, which means you have been here 17 years knowing full well that you are illegal and did nothing to change that status, you do not deserve to have entry into our country. Yeah, I agree. I agree with you. It's uh, only politicians to create something like that, right? <laughs> oh, man. You also support Rand Paul's penny plan, which my state representative, Mark Sanford, who will soon be replaced by Katie Arrington next week, uh, supports the penny plan also. Tell us what that is. It's a really simple plan that makes a lot of common sense. And, of course, common sense is not uh, always available much in Washington, but here's what it is. One penny per dollar per year is set aside to balance the budget and then begin to pay down the debt over time. So you're talking about a gradual phase-out, one penny per dollar per year. It's a no-brainer. It should be done. But, of course, we don't have the votes in the Republican-controlled Senate because there's a lot of people pretending to be Republicans who really aren't Republicans at all. So I would have supported the penny plan, and I think it's a shame that it didn't pass. No. Oh, one of the things, my pet peeves is, and you have it in your platform, about regula- regulatory reform. See if I can try to say that three times fast. And this always drives me crazy because you, Congress has the ability to pass laws. But what has happened with these unelected backdoor bureaucrats, they make these regulations with the power of law. That you can be fined, you can be jailed, you can have your assets forfeited. That's not the purpose of regulation. That's the purpose of laws. We've created a regulatory state that's not accountable to the people. And what happens is that's Congress's fault because what they do, they create an agency, and then they promulgate powers to the agency. And the agency is given this mass ability to create 
basically new laws. And if you don't think they're new laws, violate one and you'll be punished. So you have these, all these agencies creating a criminal, uh, criminalization of society, and there's no accountability. Congress has to be reined in. This entire federal government has to be reined in. It's gotten out of control, and we can't give lip service to it. We have to actually do something about it. A good first step, full regulatory reform. Don't let Congress pass the buck. Make them vote on these regulations, up or down, and that way we'll have more accountable representatives. Yeah, well, under the Obama administration, regulations went through the roof, and fortunately Trump is trying to pare them back. But that is one heck of a swamp that you've got to drain. You still have uh, bureaucracies that were put in place during the Civil War that are still in existence. Once you have you know, one of these bureaucracies, one of these agencies, they just never go away. So how do you start eliminating them? Well, it starts with um... – for example, Rand Paul's penny plan would have been a really good first step because you're reducing the amount of money coming into the system. And by definition, that would restrict. But you have to find these agencies that are, by definition, unconstitutional. This is going to sound a little crazy, I know, but Article 1, Section 8 gives the federal government every power it's supposed to have. If it exceeds that power, those powers belong to the states and the people, respectively. So as the government exceeds those powers, we have to find ways to scale them back. Legislation is a good place to do it. Court reform, judicial reform is a good place to do it. But it's going to take a lot of courage and a lot of power because, as you know, the Democrats, whenever we scale back government, they always allege all these terrible things are happening. And it's just going to take courageous men and women to do the right thing for our children because if we keep going the same direction, mathematically speaking, our country cannot survive this debt. So we owe it to ourselves now to turn the tide of history, to stand there and be responsible adults. And that means we have to begin to scale back this government, one unconstitutional agency at a time. Chris. Oh, man. If only we can get you to run for president now. <laughs> Go ahead, Curtis. <laughs> Chris, up yes, until Trump became president, it was, it was um, a rare occasion where you, you saw Republicans stand up to the Democrats. Um, in a sense, do you believe that Trump, by his actions, are pretty much showing Republicans how to fight back, and are they learning? I think are they taking a lesson? Yes, sir. I think he's a great example on how to do it, and I'm very pleased that he's fighting. But I don't think the party as a whole has started fighting back. We, we saw a little spark when it came to Kavanaugh, but that was because they had to. They, they were forced by Trump's election and by the fact that those accusations had no credibility. Trump's agenda still remains stalled, primarily because of the U.S. Senate. And what you're going to have over there, if we've had control of this government for two years and we can't even build the wall, that's a problem. So, no, I don't think the party as a whole is fighting. I think the party as a whole are just falling into line. They're doing what Mitch McConnell asked them to do. They're doing what the lobbyists asked them to do. Until we break up that cartel, of the lobbyists controlling these individual members, unfortunately, you're never going to see the fight that we're supposed to see. And if we can break it up, though, and, and show the, the politicians that the winds are shifting, then the politicians, by virtue of fear, will begin to fight. But in, we have to scare them first. And by scare them, I mean, if they don't come along for the fight, it's time to uh, primary them and bring them home to the private sector. If we challenge them and force them back toward liberty and back toward the right, we can have success. But Man, I, I just don't see that spark there yet. Now, Trump's doing a great job, but the U.S. Senate's not, and that's a problem. 
Well, you know, we have a huge problem with K Street, even to the point where yeah. they write the legislation. You know, no, no legislator wrote Obamacare. It was the lobbyists. So how do we rein in these lobbyists, get their hands off of our legislation, let legislators do their job? How do we do that? Well, obviously, some financial reform could take place in that regard. But I think more importantly, I think that's, I don't think that really fixes the problem in the long term. I think what we have to do is we have to focus on decentralization of power. The only way to really decentralize the power of lobbyists is to decentralize the power of the federal government. By virtue of that, they lose their power. I think term limits are a good first step to decentralizing or disempowering lobbyists as well, because if you don't have uh, the incentive of perpetual reelection driving the politician, then the lobbyists lose uh, a lot of control. But essentially, I think almost every issue that ails our federal government is because it's too powerful, because it tries to do too much. So instead of piecemealing tiny reforms, Let's begin to scale back those powers and send them back to the states where those powers always belong. We have a system uh, where the states are part of a dual sovereign, and those states should take those powers back, allow the people to exercise and uh, uh, work as laboratories in all of these states with domestic policy and educational policy and fiscal policy. And in so doing, we take away the powers of Washington, D.C. And, and, and so doing, they have the power. The lobbyists lose their power. So I think an overall governmental reform is the best approach. Well, some of the states are exercising the Tenth Amendment rights and are reclaiming some of their powers. Uh, I know my state of South Carolina has done that as to uh, gun rights is one of the yeah. issues. And the latest thing from the left is they're now, again, they're going after the bump stocks. Uh, again, they're going after the ammunition. They are, again, trying to find other ways to undermine our Second Amendment rights. Now, as a senator, what would you do to help protect our our state rights? Well, the, I've read the amendment, Second Amendment, and it says, shall not be infringed. That's pretty clear language, shall not be infringed. Uh, I don't need a federal judge to tell me what that means. I can read, and I'm an American citizen. I have enough sense to know it, it shall not be infringed, and so I, I can't be more clear than that. I'm an absolutist when it comes to that right. I have many, many firearms. Uh, like most Mississippians, we value our Second Amendment rights. In fact, I have an AR-15. I know that's going to shock some people listening, but I have one. I love it, and I'm going to keep it because that's my right as an American citizen. So uh, I just believe strongly in that Second Amendment. I'm going to fight for it. Yeah, well, you have other states such as New York that went so far that you can only have seven rounds in your firearm. You know, I'm a retired New York City cop. I'm sorry. You're telling me that I can only carry just so many rounds and the bad guy is able to carry unlimited number of rounds? Right, who, who right. Are you, are, who are you protecting, the bad guy or letting the cop protect the innocent? It is so, yeah, it's, as my friend Mark Tucker yeah. says, bass backwards. It, it's embarrassing. I mean, you think about uh, Chicago, for example. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the city. I'm a big Cubs fan. I've been my whole life. And it has some of the most restrictive firearm laws in the country. And yet, every weekend, massive numbers of shootings occur. And what you'll find throughout history is when you do create these new areas where so-called gun-free areas or these restrictive rights, restrictive functions are allowed, you will have more violence. I can tell you comfortably that the only way sometimes to stop a bad guy is a good guy with a firearm. And what we see in Mississippi is uh, we're, a, we're a state that values that right. And because of that, you don't see quite as much of that nonsense as you see in some of the uh, some of the other places where they have Second Amendment restrictions. So I just believe strongly in freedom. I believe strongly in liberty. 
and that Second Amendment is perhaps the most uh, important uh, protection we have. So I'm going to fight for it. Well, it, it's funny because you know we it, the tragedy in the synagogue in Pittsburgh is is horrendous. Eleven people yes. uh, were killed in this, and the others were 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 badly injured. But I try to remember where it was. But at the same time, on Saturday in another city, um, two sons out to McDonald's, and as he was leaving the McDonald's, a bad guy with a mask came in and started shooting up the place. Daddy pulled out his legal firearm and took out the bad guy. Well, he and his son were shot, but not badly, not, not anything life-threatening, but the bad guy went down. You, do, yeah. you don't hear about that. That is buried. So a you know, good guy so with a right. gun took out a bad guy, and no one's talking about it. And it, yeah, happens all, and it happens all the time. And I'll tell you how many thousands of these things occur where uh, gunfire is not exchanged, but the presence of the gun by the good guy, deters further aggression. It happens every day in this country, and we've seen studies time and time again where good people uh, with firearms have, um, have have decreased criminal activity, and it's just a no-brainer. And while we can't go back to this traditional thought, I tell you what the problem is. We trust politicians too much. We, we accept them to fashion solutions for us too often. I mean, we, we have a constitution. How about we try following it for a change? I think that's a good idea. Well, it's funny because uh, shortly after we, my husband and I moved into South Carolina, there was a burglaries that were going around, a three-man team. And I was unaware of it at the time. And this one guy just kept on showing up at my front door trying to sell me magazines saying he was a college-age kid. If he was a college-age kid, then I'm still a virgin. <laughs> That's how bad it was. <laughs> so I, at the, after the third or fourth time, I said, that's it, I had it. So I tucked my off-duty into my waistband. I answered the front door, and I said, you've got the count of three. And it was, feet, don't fail me down. now. He was flying down those front steps. And it turns out, and I called 911 and said, there's three guys. There's a white van at the end of the street. turns out it was the guys they were looking for. It was a three-man burglary crew. So how many crimes did I stop that day? One good girl oh, with yeah. a gun maybe stopped. I don't know how many crimes. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, that's a great example of it. But you should have seen those feet flying. <laughs> and I've got a long driveway. You can park eight cars in. <laughs> it was at the end of the driveway by free. <laughs> oh, man. It, 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 the left's ability to try to whittle down our freedoms and our constitutional rights are always, always amazing. And another issue I always take issue with them on is abortion. Yeah. Now, um, the Gosnell movie has just come out, and uh, we interviewed uh, the filmmakers, uh, Phil and uh, Phil and Ann McAleer, about it. But this, if Black Lives Matter so much, why are they not protesting these Planned Parenthood facilities, these Margaret Sanger institutions? Well, I tell you, I, I, for the life of me, I can't understand why we're still funding Planned Parenthood. We have control of the government. We have control of the apparatus, and we're still funding Planned Parenthood. It, it just defies all logic, and it begs the question: What exactly are we doing up there? The individual life matters, and um, conservatives believe that life begins at conception. If that's the case, and it is the case. Then states certainly have the prerogative and the right to interpose and to save that child. Uh, Roe versus Wade took that right away from the states, and that decision was wrongfully decided. 
And um, I just think it's a shame that we've gone so far down that path. Now we're even funding Planned Parenthood. And think about that. We're forcing American citizens to pay for something they may find morally reprehensible. That's not the way free people are supposed to live their lives. And, and furthermore, Planned Parenthood is a private corporation, and they're profitable. Since when are we subsidizing profitable private corporations? It makes little sense at all. So I'm very much against the fund of the Planned Parenthood, and uh, I just I don't understand why we can't find ways to fight it. But so far, uh, going back to your earlier question, the Senate especially has shown no intention to uh, fight against it. Well, you know, the question is, is that I'm being forced to fund this. It's my tax dollar. I have no say where that tax dollar goes. Once it goes into the government coffers, I lose all control of where that funding goes. I should be able to say, well, listen, um, I think we should fund maybe NPR. No, I have no choice. There's nothing on my income tax things that says uh, X amount of dollars will be going to the wall. X amount of dollars will go to education. X amount of dollars will go to the military. There's no control. So my constitutional right is being violated then. Well, it is, and it's being compounded even worse by the fact that for many people, it's a deeply held religious belief. So the government is actually taking money and forcing you to violate that deeply held religious belief. And that one would think that would run counter to the free exercise clause, but uh, courts have construed these various exceptions, and they've allowed the liberals to get away with this nonsense. But I just uh, – I find the, the fund of the Planned Parenthood to be completely objectionable, and, and we should defund it immediately without hesitation. Well, one of the things – I'm going to put you on in the spotlight for this because there was a statement you made, and I said, oh, my goodness, you must have gotten a lot of heat from this one because you were up on MSNBC – Mm-hmm. called out to African-Americans to stop begging for federal government scraps. Those are your words. Uh, what happened? <laughs> What's well, going on? I, at the time, I was speaking uh, to the entire state of Mississippi, and the uh, the American left, of course, uh, began to boo and complain mightily. You know, we, we the American left has created a bunch of people out there now that are just professionally offended. They go everything outraged to outrage, trying to find something to be angry about. And uh, what I was talking about was the system that Mississippi has. And here's, here's what I meant by it. For 100 years, Mississippi, its government, its people, its corporations, have relied too heavily on federal handouts, welfare, if you will. My position is you can't build long-term economic prosperity on food stamps or on welfare. You have, you have to have jobs. And the reason for that is jobs provide upward mobility, whereas government handouts do not provide upward mobility. Number two, if you're depending solely on government subsidies to, to run the state, state legislatures and lawmakers aren't proactive enough in, in creating a pro-market or pro-free market environment for job growth. All these years, Mississippi has begged for these dollars. All these years, people have been fooled by their government into being told it's the only way things work, but we still remain dead last economically. We can turn things around here. But we have to turn around the old system. The old system is designed to empower a small handful of lobbyists, a small handful of power brokers at the very top of the food chain. And that's the establishment. And that has to be broken up before we can find prosperity. Well, you know, you've got a very unique background. You know, you're an attorney, uh, you're a commentator, you're a former law clerk. Who'd you clerk for? Just curious. Uh, Federal Judge Pickering. You might remember he was a district court judge. 
nominated on the recess appointment to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals, and there was a lot of controversy over his uh, appointment. But his name is Charles Pickering. That was my judge. Well, you are uniquely qualified, and I'd like to see you do it. But you're in a four-man field going into the primary. And the last polls I was able to see was from a couple of weeks ago, and you're sitting third out of the fourth. Have you moved any further? Do you have a good chance? Yeah. What's going on? Yeah, that poll, those polls are done with propaganda in mind. You have to understand the establishment works is they have to tamper, not tamper, they have to basically uh, hamper um, excitement from the base. In other words, to drive down momentum, drive down enthusiasm. That poll was flawed. They didn't poll my home district. They didn't poll my strong points of the state. The poll was designed to give an illusion that I was in third place. And I'm going to tell you, I hope people believe that poll because remember for the sixth, we're going to win this thing. We're going to shock the whole country. But I can tell you, that poll is not accurate. Mainstream media, you think? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Chris. Just when do we, we trust NBC, right? When do we start trusting NBC for goodness sake? Yeah. What do you think of this blue wave they've been talking about? Well, I uh, I don't think much of it at all. I I realize that uh, it's out there. I realize there's some, there are some districts that are highly motivated, enthusiastic about their candidates, but I just feel like the Democrats have overplayed their hand with the Kavanaugh nomination. I think they were embarrassed by it ultimately. And uh, now I believe it's going to backfire on just a bit. And I, I'm hoping we can find enough in these congressional districts to hold it all to the House. And I, I think it's going to be close there. But, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't think a lot of any blue wave. I'm, uh, they're supposed to be our adversaries. Uh, they're our philosophical enemies. And we have to- well, you know, we've got early voting here in South Carolina. And I know it's down by you in Florida, Curtis. Um, so my husband and I went and voted yesterday. Uh, and when we got there, we thought it was a long line. When we left, it was way out the door and double the size. So it, yeah. a lot of people are motivated to get out early. I was really surprised how long the lines were. Um, I don't know if you've got early voting in Mississippi, but is, are you seeing the same thing? We don't have traditional early voting. We have absentee ballots, and we are seeing a slight increase in the number of absentees being uh, being cast. So Mississippi is such a red state. Uh, the Democrats are going to have any success here. <laughs> we hope so. We hope so. Yeah. You know, because as a state uh, senator, you came through with some really great legislation. You know, uh, one of the things that really ticks me off is eminent domain. And we had a situation here in South Carolina where they're trying to do these road improvements. And they wanted to put this walk and bike pathway through certain people's properties. And a former state senator was sitting on this panel and they were asked, well, what happens if the property owner doesn't want to sell you that property? He goes, oh, we'll just take it. And my jaw yeah. dropped. And, of course, the public wasn't allowed to put any input into it. You were allowed to attend, but you weren't allowed to, to participate. Uh, and that, that just floored me. Here, a state senator would say something as blatant as that, and he was supposed to be a conservative, too. Eminent domain yeah. is a, a big problem. It's a huge problem, and it goes to show just how they see us. You know, you think about that. That is a very, uh, to frame that argument, just who does he think he is? You know, they're supposed to work for us, not the other way around. And we see this in Washington as well. I cannot stand the idea that we've created an aristocracy in this country. These politicians believe they're an aristocracy. They think they're better than the American people. 
and it's time for us to push back. And to the extent they try to abuse them in the domain, it just, uh, it's one of those things that is near and dear to my heart because private property rights, that's the cornerstone of conservatism. That's the cornerstone of liberty. If you can't hold on to what's yours, then the government can take it arbitrarily or capriciously, then you can't be said to be free. That's especially true when it's real property. So um, I recognize the Constitution does allow for some taking, one which is for uh, public use uh, and there's just compensation paid. But, you know, we have to narrowly construe that. We have to narrowly construe that. That, that power should never be abused because, to me, that's the ultimate definition of tyranny. Well, it comes back to when Stephen Breyer and the Supreme Court decided that up in Connecticut, yeah. they can do eminent domain, take everyone's property, and give it over to a realtor or a real estate developer for a new mega shopping mall, which never got built. That just, they just, took yeah, all those people's yeah. property and nothing yeah. happened. It's disgusting. It was the, the Kelo decision, and the Supreme Court rewrote the Constitution like they like to all the time. And, you know, it's funny. Look at the clause public use, the public use clause. We know what that is. Those are highways, those are schools. And that's how it was traditionally understood. The Kelo decision reversed that entire trend. Now he was arguing that if somebody else can use your property better than you can use it and, and raise taxes on it, uh, then they should be allowed to take your property by force. And that's just nonsense. And so what we did in Mississippi, we uh, went through some reform, and we basically mandated that you could not take that property, despite Kilo, uh, unless, uh, unless it was for a true public use. And I think that reform was much needed. Everyone has to do that, every state. And that's another thing that you're for, stripping down – excuse me, back to the bare constitution, because there have mm-hmm. been rulings and rulings – that have actually expanded the document to such a gigantic, huge monstrosity by slowly destroying parts of the Constitution to make things work. So if we back down to the basics, to the actual words of the original Constitution and throw everything out, I think we'd be better off, wouldn't we? Well, yeah, we have an amendment process. We have an amendment process. That's very important. The Constitution has been amended several times, and that's fine. What we cannot allow, though, is federal justices to amend it based on their own unique opinions of what it should say. That's not the way free people operate. If we give the federal judiciary that kind of power, we've basically taken our legislative power, we've advocated it, and we've given it over to a bunch of unelected justices. That is no way for free people to live. So to your point, yeah, I mean, people to amend the Constitution as a process, and it's very difficult to do, but that's the way they intended it. It's supposed to be difficult to amend the charter document. What you don't want is some federal court redefining the Constitution or rewriting it based on his own subjective opinion of what he should say. And so that's what, that's what we have to fight against is that type of federal uh, judicial uh, overreach. You know, what people don't realize is when they pick up that little pocket Constitution, what's hidden in there are all these decisions. All these opinions have now become attached to the document the government goes by. We may have say these are the original Constitution, but that's not what the government is using. They're using an amended one that was amended unconstitutionally with these opinions and with these decisions. Well, exactly. You know, consider just for a moment the Obamacare decision a few years ago and uh, challenged the individual mandate of Obamacare. And Justice Roberts, who was supposed to be a conservative judge, rewrote the law to make it constitutional. He rewrote it to make it constitutional. That was not his job. He took too much power. He usurped the legislative function. 
and he tried to justify it by claiming that somehow now the mandate was a tax, and when, he, when we all know it really wasn't at the time. And that's the type of abuse we see is traditional activism, and the liberals do it all the time. And this time, unfortunately, Justice Roberts did it, and he, he was too clever by half. He, he was not the conservative he claimed himself to be in that decision. So we see it all the time. We see, um, you know, from the Roe decision all the way down to Griswold versus Connecticut and across the board, we see these decisions come out of thin air. And Chris, basically, yes, sir. Was there no recourse for Congress? <clears throat> Excuse me. When Roberts did that? Yes, sir. There, there is. It's just you've got to have courage to take it. The first recourse yeah, um, is to, is to uh, limit uh, jurisdiction. In other words, you can limit federal jurisdiction and take away some of these issues from the federal judiciary. Number two, these justices, this constitutional oath, should be impeached. And I promise you, if you impeach one or two, uh, quite a few others would stand uh, and recognize the, the problem that's occurring. And I know that sounds a bit problematic, but the founders gave us those powers in the Constitution. I think we should probably exercise and see how that works out. And as you said, it takes intestinal fortitude. And unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing in Congress. And hopefully this midterm (laughs) will change that situation by sending you to the Senate so you can work with some good people like my state senator, Tim Scott. And yeah, maybe absolutely. put a little pit slap on Lindsey Graham. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's good stuff. Oh, man. You know, you, you have done some really great stuff. And one of the things I loved is because their attack on our religious freedoms has been nonstop. And uh, before you go, I see that we only have a minute left with you. Uh, one of the things you did was allowing students to be able to pray in school. And you hear story after story where a child will stop to pray over their meal or wear a crucifix uh, and then be chastised for expressing their right. freedom of religion. And yet right. you can have a separate Muslim prayer room. Yeah, and so, the Supreme Court has created a terrible line of cases that are almost impossible to follow. So what happens is there's a chilling effect on religious displays and religious speech in schools. Let me tell you something. Our kids don't lose their rights when they walk into the schoolhouse door. They keep those rights. They retain those rights, and so do the teachers. And so we fashioned a bill that gave uh, parents and teachers and kids a a path by which they could pray, uh, have their symbols and their clothing, and and speak their minds. And um, I thought it was a very good bill. I'm proud of it, and so far it hasn't been challenged. And I believe it's constitutional and that we're going to keep it for a long, long time. Well, your primary is coming this Tuesday with the uh, yeah. uh, runoff right after that. People can find you on your website. It's your last name followed by 2018, McDaniel 2018. Chris, I wish you right. really good luck because I think you are the man for the job. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's a lot. And just come see me, McDaniel 2018, and just keep up the good work. Well, God bless, sir. And thank you for God joining us. Take care. Take care. Take care. All right. Check out Chris McDaniel, McDaniel 2018, and give him a little boost in the uh, in the election. And uh, we got the next victim up on the line, a returning guest. Always fun to have him on. And matter of fact, his book came in on my Kindle today. I want to welcome back Burgess Owens. Good afternoon, Burgess. How are you today? I'm doing great. Looking forward to chatting with you again, once again, for sure. Uh, hey, Burgess. It, it, it's fantastic. Your book was released as of today. It is out there for people to get up on Amazon as well as your website called Why I Stand 
from freedom to the killing fields of socialism that followed on the footsteps of your previous book, Liberalism on How to Turn Good Men into Wood. I can say, can't even say it. Wires, weeds, and wimps. And I'm linking these two books together for a reason uh, because I started reading your book. I got up to, started on chapter four just before coming on air. <laughs> so, congratulations. I love the, I love the book. Well, I'm having well, a lot of fun thank with you so it. Much. And, and, you know, I, I think it's, uh, it's just where we're having these conversations that we're having now. And, and I'll, I'll say that uh, a lot of it is because we have a president who's kind of drawn a line in stand in terms of uh, what's important for our country. That uh, we should have our America's name first, which means that I am a nationalist. I, I believe more in our country than any other country in the world and around the world, and I'm proud, proud of that fact. So that's what I'm happy to to be part of that conversation. And thanks again for the opportunity to to uh, have a chance to chat a little bit about it today. Oh, it it is my honor, honestly. Every time I talk to you, besides, my husband was a Miami Hurricane fan. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> there we go. There's a connection with you. Go Canes. <laughs> I mean, as a matter of fact, uh, in the in the place that he and I met, uh, the owners would always have a rivalry, and I believe it was ninety one that the Hurricanes took the championship, and there was a bet that my husband had with the uh, owner of the place that if the Hurricanes won, he had to hang his Hurricanes jersey jersey over the door so everyone coming in and out could see it. <laughs> so for several oh, months, his jersey was over this restaurant's door. Until his daughter decided she well, liked it better for a night shirt and slept in it every night and drove him even further up the wall. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, uh, I came to the era when the, when the Hurricanes were still trying to figure out how to win. So over the years, I've become very, very proud to to uh, show the you because they've, they've really making us all proud. We just have to hopefully come back against them. We'll see how that works out. Well, well Burgess, when was it when um, Vinny Testaverde played? Oh, gosh. See, he came in after me. So the I 70s? No, oh, no, I, I no, 90s. I, I came. I, I played. I played in the 70s. I think Vinny came in in the 90s, I believe. Um, but again, I, you know, I, I just I wasn't following it a whole lot during that time. But I just remember that they were consistently winning and and, and getting oh, yeah. uh, just to say the least to have to have a universe Miami that has um, three of those um, uh, those uh, videos on them now. I can't think of the name of them offhand, but it says a lot about what they've done. So yeah, hope they can come back yeah, I, again I think- one day. I think it was like ninety ninety one in that area that uh, Vinny was there because oh, okay. that was the uh, championship team, and that was when the jersey yeah. went over the door. Oh <laughs> 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 I want to talk about your new book because it is so apropos today, and some of the stuff you actually wrote in the book in the first couple of chapters. I'm going, oh my god, it's it's this election cycle you're talking about, and what you yeah. wrote in there is just so <laughs> prophetic. Um, you wrote. Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism. And that is such an interesting title in itself, uh, because killing fields sounds like it's, it's a horror. Like people are going to be dying in the street. In a way, you're yes, also talking yes. about metaphorically killing the spirit of freedom and individualism. You nailed it. Uh, I think the first thing, part of that is, 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 a, is a connection with the fact that we've lost so much of our history. Uh, you know, if, if, if Americans understood what black Americans would do, our community was doing back in the early 1900s, when we were free, we were capitalists, we were um, uh, uh, Christian-based, we just believed in us the country. You know, it was 1905 that it was Tuskegee uh, College 
that led, uh, that was uh, producing more self-made millionaires than Harvard, Yale, and Princeton combined. That's kind of history we don't know about. That's when our, our, our culture our, uh, was very, very moving forward and it's a great trajectory. And then what happened is socialists took over. <clears throat> the NAACP came in, National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, started by 21 white socialists, Marxist, racist, race, race controlled Democrats. They started, they started a, 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 an organization that actually turned around on our heads the direction we're heading into. So what I was kind of pointing to is that any culture, any people come to this country, assimilate, understand freedom, opportunity, and hope, they all have the same result. When you take that away, the result also is the same, which is right now what's happening in these urban communities where you have nothing but misery abound. Uh, so it, it is no question that it's the worst thing that happened any 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 race, any country. And we need to fight strong against that because that's, uh, we're at a point now where at least they're honest. These Democrats are showing themselves who they've been always, always has been, which are socialists and Marxists. They're now being able to to say that's who they are, and I'm glad to see that because now now we know now we know who we're voting for. Burgess, what do you say to um, what do you say to these new black elitists that supposed to be conservatives who say the black community does not need a history history lesson? Well, they're not they're not conservatives. They're they're black elitists. They're uh, they're they're liberals. You know, this is the thing about the left. Uh, they'll say whatever they have to say to 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 win their argument. They can care less about the truth. Uh, these black people, by the way, just so you know, uh, the biggest threat to the black community over the last century has not been white supremacists. It's been black elitists. It's these people who live the American dream. They put their kids in the greatest uh, uh, schools on God's green earth. On God's green earth, they they live they, they, they in big great communities, drive big cars, have a big bank account, and then tell other black Americans how we can't do it because this country is too racist. These are the leaders. These are the the the, uh, the black caucus. These uh, these folks on CNN and in, in MSNBC that live their dream and making great income, and then try to steal the dream away from the rest of us. So no, we need our history. We need to, to understand that we're we're a country based on godly principles, Judeo-Christian values, and not only that, because we understand our history, we realize that we the people have done great things together. It's not just been whites or blacks or Hispanics. It's been all of us because we see ourselves as Americans first. So if you hear people talk like that or call, call themselves conservative and they talk, they talk like liberals, they're liberals. Just know that. Um, and that's what liberals do. They don't mind making big bucks trying to, to, uh, to, to conceal who they really are. They've done a good job of it for, for a long time now. Well, you know, you have it where you have this group of people that say, you owe me. You know, there was slavery in the United States, so you owe me. You're white, so therefore you owe me. But I don't owe you anything. I mean, that was 150 years ago. I have nothing to do with that. So how do I owe you? Well, that's that's uh, when it comes down to liberal think. Uh, is there's no no there's no way to make any sense of it. So we have to make sure we're not trying to drive ourselves nuts. Uh, debating these kind of people. <clears throat> you know, at the end of the day, you have some people that believe they, they, they want to be victims. They don't want to see themselves as, as who God made them, able to come, overcome anything. And then you have the leaders who need to have victims. They need to have people that look at them, to them as gods so they can go out and do their thing, have their control, and run around and talk about how they're going to change the world and, 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 the, and the oceans will recede once they become, become uh, you know, president or whatever. So understand that we have to know who we're, who we're debating against. I know there's 30% of black Americans out there who feel the same way I do. We love our country, we love our God, 
love our race, are proud of our history, and uh, we just now need to start avoiding our values and principles versus party. Once we do that, those are people, by the way, that I'm going to spend as much time as I can to talking to because they want the very best for the kids and their future in our country. They're not, they're not hating our country because, <clears throat> because we're Christians. They're not Marxists. They're not anti-God like Marxists and socialists and, and, and these Democrats. So if we spend our time in the right places, having the right debates, um, then we'll win this fight. Because at the end of the day, the conservative thought is the best thought in the history of mankind. Because we, if focused on a God in heaven that gives us direction and blesses us for doing the right things, if we understand that and we have a great relationship as a country, we'll continue to get blessed and we'll continue to heal what the leftists have done over the last eight years to us, divide us. Well, in your book, which is called Why I Stand, you do stress the importance of history because you go back to the Mayflower Compact and the pilgrims coming over and the reason why they come over, to, be, to gain freedom, to be able to practice the religion freely. And it was, it was the start of the greatest experiment. But I would go even further back to the Magna Carta and also, um, oh, oh, good Lord, my mind just went into a major brain fart here, uh, <laughs> English common law which in the English common law stated the right to defend yourself, the right to hold property, the right to address your government. English common law established it, and the pilgrims then brought that with them here to create the greatest experiment. And you talk about that in your book. How about the Gutenberg Bible? The the first printing press, the very first book that came off the printing press that allows everyone to empower themselves with knowledge. They can sit and study, not to wait for somebody to tell them stuff like the Democrats are doing to black people who can't read anymore. But the Gutenberg, that was the very first Bible that came, the first book come off the Gutenberg, Gutenberg Press. If you look back on our history, all the way back to the Magna Carta, all the way through, you realize that there's been a plan for this country from the very beginning. And we're part of that. We, we are so blessed to be Americans, to be free, to have dreams, to debate, to not, not agree, but still get along, to, to go out and, and build for our future and our kids. That's something that doesn't happen around the, around the world like, like here. So it's all part of a great master plan. And once we understand that we are part of that plan, it gives us value. It gives us the opportunity to know that we're here to get something done, not to sit back and complain, whine, and point fingers, but to get up and do some work, man up and woman up the way we're asked to do, have the courage to be, to be someone who's willing to stand for principles and values. We do that, and this country wins, as, it, as, as we've always won in the past, because we've always had great Americans who believe in those concepts. The Great Shining City on the Hill, which is mentioned in the Bible, which Ronald Reagan cited. We've got a, a caller in on the line. Let me bring a friend of the show on, Cool Mike. Good afternoon, Cool Mike. How are you today? Good afternoon, my friends. I already don't like your guests because I'm a Notre Dame fan. Uh, we've talked to Miami <laughs> so many times. Uh, Vinny Testaverde was in the mid-'80s, by the way. He, uh, they won okay. a national championship with Vinny. Um uh, oh, okay. My question is, let me say something real quickly. You would have loved my team because when I played Notre Dame, did this up every single time we played against them. So uh, I wasn't <laughs> part of the of the, the part that came back and won. Believe me, they were happy to see us every year they played us. So, was that before Howard Schnellenberger? Yes, that was back with Tom Tom uh, Tom Gate Gatewood Tom Gatewood. I don't remember oh, that name. Tom Gatewood. Yeah, I remember. Yeah. I remember. I remember Tom Gatewood. He he was receiver for ND. Uh, what is going on as far as you, you see so many years ago, the inner city was loaded with tough black, black men. Now, yeah. I mean, they're almost like, uh, they're almost like cross dressers. They have 
because of the election. Um, I, I mean, for for heaven's sakes, uh, there's something uh, men are now claiming that they can't, uh, they're not sexually aroused uh, because of the, the effect Donald Trump is having on them, the liberals. Uh, males are yep. saying this. I mean, what what the hell happened? Well, what's happening very simply, I understand, uh, and, and, and I appreciate that question. Keep this in mind. It was a black community that back in the 40s and 50s and 60s led our country in terms of men committed to marriage, men committed to education, percentage of entrepreneurs, 40%. Uh, you go through the litany because they were, they were raised to be strong men by that segregated black community. What liberals do when they get into a society is they screw it up. They mess up the family. They mess up manhood. You have women now. Think of this. 1,800 black men, uh, women and girls every single day have been trained to think that killing their babies is health care. You take away the, 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 the connection with the, with the mother and a, and a baby, you take, away, you take away womanhood. You take away a man's ability to understand they, that they're there to protect, provide, and lead his family, you take away manhood. That's what liberals do. They, liberalism is about taking away the Judeo-Christian values that, that, that defines us as, as, a, as a strong people, with men and women as partners doing their part, holding their role, and, and making sure we move our, ourselves forward. So don't be surprised. You see... Uh, whether it be Boy Scouts, whether you see the, the, the family unit, whether you see FBI, it doesn't matter. Wherever they, wherever they land, they will destroy it because they're all about lies, deception, stealth, and, and turning everything upside down. So we need to fight against these guys. It's an ideology of evil. It's an ideology that destroys, and we need to make sure we don't, do not allow that to continue to in, in, infect our country. Oh, this is the same party yeah. that booed God on their, um, their um, platform. At the convention. <laughs> and here, here, here's the thing. Uh, where, where are the Christians? Where are the Christians who say they believe in God, who say they really have this great love of the Lord, and, and, and still vote for people that will boo God when they, when they try to put him back into their platform? They already took him out. They try to put him back in, and they start booing him. These are godless, this is a, it's a godless ideology game. And it's not bad people. It's an evil ideology, and good people need to pull away from it. If you continue to vote for bad people, evil and ideology, we become that what we draw ourselves to. We cannot afford for these good people out there to continue to be uh, taking down this path. We to educate ourselves at what socialism is, what Marxism is. It doesn't matter where it is across the country, around the world. It's evil, and it brings misery and death and hopelessness. It always has been the case. And you look at you look at how angry these people are today, how much they want to bully and, and, and destroy anybody that comes in their way, that's the, that's, the, that's the adversary. That's the evilness of socialism. We need to fight against that, man up and woman up, and let's go, let's go toward the, the, the brightness of this country that's always been good for us. That is a huge amen on that one. And you write about all this in your book and also explain why now the NFL is being destroyed from within. What, what made America great, what made football the greatest pastime in the USA, has been completely destroyed by these people. Yeah, and that's the thing. It doesn't matter where they land. Uh, NFL now is not run by the same people that many of us grew up with, Al Davis, Pete Roselle. These are globalists. These people care less about our country, care less about our, our culture. They care about their bottom line. So what they're doing now is they're demeaning the American flag, they're demeaning our culture so they can be accepted around the world in China, in France, and wherever else we want to go so they can be a very neutral uh, kind of a company. They don't care about those players. They don't care about the black community. They don't care about our country. They care about their dollars. 
So I, I'm one of those guys. I will not, and I will not pay a buy another ticket to see another game as long as we have a commissioner who's nothing but a, a socialist and a globalist, one that does not allow our country. And that's why they allow these kids to destroy their lives, standing on the sideline when they should be out there collecting themselves and making making business together, stand up and telling their peers, "Let's man up and let's take care of our kids." Those messages are not going out because the NFL could care less about uh, about the progress of the black race. And this is something that we've been facing for a, quite a long time. And I'm trying to remember, uh, like I said, I started reading the book before coming on air, so I got up to Chapter 4. Um, but you were talking about one You're of good. our founding fathers. That is- I'm a <laughs> one of our founding fathers wrote that his greatest fear is that European thinking would start to destroy the fabric of what they built. And it wasn't very shortly afterwards that that started to happen. You had the rise of the movie industry out in Hollywood actually started off in Flushing, New York, uh, with Woodrow Wilson showing a birth of a nation, a KKK movie in the White House. Um, You talk about a pygmy African that was captured and put in a cage at the Bronx Zoo, Ota Benga, uh, trying to show how the blacks were evil and, and inferior. This has been incepted in our society as long as we allow these European thoughts and stop being uniquely American. Well, you know, understand, this is what, um, this is what uh, true uh, racists do, and that's been in the Democratic Party. They convince black people that they're inferior. They, they convince black people that whites are more powerful. You wonder why, why white privilege comes from? That is the most demeaning thing I can ever do. Walk around and look at somebody white and say, you know, you're, you're much better than I am. You're more powerful than me. You owe me because you're white. We turn ourselves into a little racist with that. But here's the other thing. When you see Martin Luther King back in the 60s, notice that they used to wear his, his entire uh, leadership, white shirts, dark ties, maybe a, a, a nice dress uh, hat in the middle of the summer walking and demonstrating. That's because they were not only uh, defeating or fighting against Jim Crow, but the demeaning narrative of the white supremacists that blacks were inferior, that we couldn't speak, we were breeders, we were criminals. Matter of fact, look at what BET, Black Entertainment Television, owned by white liberal Democrats, that's been pumping through our community for the last 18 years, you see the most demeaning projection of what a black people, black people are, what black men is particular. You want to see why it's been switched around? Our heroes are people wearing gold tees, can't speak unless they're rapping, calling our, our, our ladies, baby mamas, that's all from white liberal Democrats who own that station and pump this filth into our communities. And you wonder why they hate our country, hate our white Americans, hate our flag. They've been trained to do that by the same socialist Marxists who now run the networks of this, this uh, uh, BICOM. So we are, we are in a fight, guys, and understand that the left is not as courageous as conservatives are. They hide. They're stealth. They bully from behind uh, white masks or black, uh, white hoods or black masks. That's what they do. But now that they're in the open, we understand who they are. We need to make sure we fight against them by, by voting them out and, and allowing our country to move forward and make the country, our country great again and, and Americans of all stripes and colors have opportunities. Well, yeah, you have someone like Cory Booker that goes, I am Spartacus. If he is so <laughs> brave. Oh, oh man, don't gosh. get me started on this one. This is what you're putting out there. If I can say this by, ahead, by, by, by Cory Booker, boy, oh, boy, so that's what we've come to. Uh, this guy, you, you, you think about how, how little we think of ourselves about ability to think, to be able to debate, to have 
critical thinking skills and to be able to not just be a guy who looks look good. That's where we are now. We have people like Kaepernick who cannot speak up, he cannot articulate what his thoughts are other than saying police are bad. And we have Cory Booker, his, his mantra, I'm Spartacus. This is what we're left with. With people, This is how low our bar has become for leadership. So let's do this. Let's not worry about being politicians. Let's go out and be entrepreneurs. Let's go out there and create, get the value where we can be independent. We don't need a job. We don't need a political office. And we have the, the greatest uh, power and, and uh, ability to move forward with a people that's entrepreneur like that. We need to teach that to our kids and stop getting into this thing. We have to cower ourselves because we need to keep a job. We do that, we'll be, we'll be just fine. Well, you know, you also addressed school choice. And this is the first thing, and I screamed about this when Obama did it. As soon as he got in office, uh, the D.C. stopped the lottery program that was working beautifully. 1,800 slots for underprivileged children, mostly black, were getting these slots and going to these lovely schools, coming out with wonderful educations. People were begging to get into this. They cut the program. And then they tried to cut it in yep. other states, too, which fortunately failed. But, you know, when, when I looked at that, I said, you know, watch. The next thing he did, because on the campaign trail, if you remember, Obama said he would send his daughters to public school. But as soon as he stepped in yep. the White House, what did he do? He sent them to elite schools, and no one called him out on that. They're destroying no. our society by, through the education. You get them young. You train them young, you indoctrinate them young, and then you control them for the rest of your life. And the left has known that for a long time. That's why I said they—they are good as stealth. They stay quietly. They get into. They like blow bowl with weevils. They get in there and they train our kids. If you think about this, we just had thing with thing with Judge Kavanaugh. Yet, yet young people from Yale and Harvard demonstrating because they didn't understand the rule of law. They didn't understand the idea of presumption of innocence before being considered guilty. They lost all of this because they had not been trained to think this way. And you're right. In terms of, in terms of hypocrisy, uh, uh, Obama was one of the worst things that could happen to black people, period. His very first act was to thank the, the, the public labor union by kicking these, these good kids out of these great schools and then paying over $80,000 per year because he could afford it to put his kids in the same schools that, that, that not allowing the other black poor kids to go to. These guys, again, uh, they're the worst of our race. They're elitist. And they, they, all they do is sit around and get their power by demeaning the American dreams and telling our kids and our people we can't do it. We need to know who, know who they are. It's not a black and white thing, guys. It's an ideology thing. And black elitists are just as bad for black community as white elitists. So are black socialists. They're just as bad as white socialists. So let's make sure we understand who they are. If they, if they say they're socialists, what they, they're saying right now very boldly, if they support socialists, which they're doing very boldly, just to say that's somebody they're going to vote for. And if you do that, they'll have to get these illegals in much faster than they're doing right now to keep their control. Yeah, because you, you write in your book, and this I found a phenomenal, a June 2017, a study was released stating that 75% of black boys in the state of California, Camila <laughs> Harris, were unable to pass a standard reading and writing test. Um, in 2012, study reported state of New Jersey, Cory Booker, nearly all of New York's Newark's disadvantaged elementary middle school, I can't even talk, school students attend failing district and charter schools. 2017 report shows that Michigan ranks last in education. These, these are phenomenal things. And then you give a conclusion. 
And you're saying either one thing is possible or it's the other. And you said that these test uh, results denoting an innate lack of intelligence in black children is very natural. After all, it's a black thing. Or these tests are unnatural and the community has been targeted by decades. That That is uh, happening. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you so much. First of all, thanks for reading that, uh, what, what you have there, because uh, obviously you're, you're, you're doing your homework. But here, here's the thing about those numbers. The sad part is I, I push out those numbers all the time. 75% of our black boys in the state of California can't read or write. You know what's sad about it is that nobody, no one that says you can't be right. You, you, this is it's impossible. The narrative is now, because we've been taught so long, that this is normal for black kids. This is the way it is during since slavery day. That's why our history is so important. That's so why it's important to realize what we did when we were free. We had freedom of opportunity with our segregated communities to see who we were and to, to educate our own kids. Those not, that's not, not only is that not happening today, but we've accepted the narrative of the Democratic leftists. The Democratic Party, which has always been the case, was the case back when they put uh, Otto Bengay in that, in, that, in that cage with a monkey back in 1910. The idea has always been that we're innately inferior. So if we have inferior results in terms of intelligence, it's only natural. That's the way the left thinks. Unfortunately, we have too many Americans, good Americans, who are bought into that, that mess. So we need to make sure we, we, we're, we're standing up. No longer should we ever, ever ask for a break. The day that we as a people, if we, if we ever have pride in ourselves, and we're asking people to give us a break, to, uh, to, to give us what, what, is, what is owed us, they're saying, we're saying already that we're already inferior, and we need to stop it. Because if anybody does that, uh, personally, I think it's an insult to every single generation in our past that's done great things and made our country work for themselves. Well, now, I'm going to go back to the beginning of the interview here where I mentioned both books and why I tied the two of them together. Uh, your book that just released as of today, so Cool Mike, if you're listening, go to Amazon and get the Kindle book or get your library to order it, uh, titled Why I Stand from from Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism. I'm tying it into your book you just released earlier uh, this year, Liberalism or How to Turn Good Men into Whiners, Winnies, and Wimps. And I did that right this time uh, because you took three chapters out of <laughs> – I'm getting better. <laughs> By the time I hit 65, I might be able to talk correctly. <laughs> anyway, um, you tie three of those chapters from the previous book into this book specifically yes. chapter four, uh, five, and six, uh, why? And what, what are these there's chapters? Certain okay. There's, there's certain chapters that, um, uh, I guess, it's certain knowledge that is important for us all to begin with. And, and knowledge, for instance, of what, um, what socialism, socialism is, you can't talk about that enough. One thing that the left does, they're good at repeating stuff. So we need to make sure we understand what socialism is, we need to understand the theft of NAACP, what they did, the Trojan horse. We also understand the evilness of a lady called Margaret Singer that the left continues to, to lift and, 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 and make as a hero, and she's killing, she's killed over 20, that organization killed over 20 million black babies since 1973. Uh, and so those are, those are the chapters I, I talk about and I repeat because you cannot hear it enough. And for those who did not read my first book, you can read it a second time. It's going to be just as powerful to realize what the left has done to make, to destroy the black family and in doing that, destroy the black community. And that's what you see in Chicago, Baltimore, uh, uh, Philadelphia, any place you see Democrats having control, you see misery. 
That is what that's called post-socialism. And if you don't understand it, maybe you should go there and live there for a year in one of these communities. You'll come out and understand what misery looks like because you'll feel it. And understand the stress people go through unnecessarily because of what Democrats have done to us. Well, is is that Detroit. why when uh, – oh, go ahead, Andy. Uh, go ahead, Andy. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, just look, look at Detroit itself. Once a bustling industry of auto, I mean, people had upper-class homes. It didn't matter who you were, white, black, yellow, green, purple, orange. It didn't matter. It was a prosperous. It was a shining example of what American exceptionalism is, and now it's a hellhole. There's no other way to describe yeah. what Detroit has become. And it's every place that Democrats find themselves. I'm finding out now, I grew up in Tallahassee, Florida. so proud of that little town I grew up in, with FAMU and, 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 and FSU. Finding out now, that is one of the worst cities in the, in, in the state of Florida in terms of crime. Well, guess what? Democratic mayor was a socialist, and he's willing to say he's a socialist. And that's what people like that do. They live in this great life, because I'm sure it's a nice gated community where everybody else suffers around them as he gives them the idea that some kind of way he's going to, have to make everything work out just because he's such a good, good person. So but ideology is something we have to fight against, and it's, you can see it every place we, we go. Let's just educate our kids, guys. If we can do that again, we'll win this battle because that generation will come up, and they'll, they'll fight for our country where our, our parents did when they were educated. Well, Burgess, I want to thank you for joining us. And you know you're always welcome on the show. Just have summer. Give, shoot me an email the next time you want to come on. Don't make me chase you. You chase me. How's that, Ben? That's a deal. I love it. I'll, hey, I'll Annie, can, I ask a, can I ask a question? Can I ask a question yes. before he you're goes? Ready? Yes. What, what, okay. Is, is this, in, in a lot of what you said, and I will get that book ordered in our library, um, oftentimes you see African-Americans who are successful, who, who speak like you. They, they don't buy into the nonsense. Is that why right away from the left, you know, Uncle Tom, Oreo, blah, 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 uh, you know, they, they try to chop them down like a tree one branch at a time? Well, you know, what's interesting, it, it works. We have too many good people out there living the dream. They teach their kids how to, how to, how to navigate the success. And they are so afraid to be conservative and to say I'm with Donald Trump because they're worried about their friends going to say what they didn't call them. That is what that, so effectively the, 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 the left has been very good at being bullies and cowards. And unfortunately we have too many within the black community that believe more in their friends thought of them versus their God thought of them and think more about their, their, the standard in the community versus the, 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 the future of their kids. So I'm, I'm, I'm very disappointed in the amount of black men, quote, if there are that, that stand by and let these guys railroad our, our, our race and our kids, demean our women, and do nothing but sit back and, and live their great life. That, to me, is the greatest uh, the betrayal of our, our race and our country, these black men who do nothing. And these, quote, black Christians who continue to vote for these atheist, socialist, and anti-God um, um, liberals. So we need to man up. And we, if we can do that within our own community, we'll win this fight and until then, let's stop complaining about what other people are doing if we're not willing to do it ourselves. We're successful. Tell That's people right. why and how we get we got to get it done. Well, That's right. Burgess, I want to thank you for joining us. People can find you at Burgess, Burgess <clears throat> Owens Talks, where they can get your book, Why I Stand, From Freedom to the Killing Fields of Socialism. God bless you for our hard work. And like I said, thank, have some thank you, you chase thank me you instead of my chasing you. Oh, All right. Okay, we'll first. get it done. I appreciate it. Absolutely. Take care, guys. All right. Bye-bye. All right, Burgess Owens. Check him out, Burgess Owens Talks. Let's bring up our next victim. Uh, he is running for Congress out of the state, the elected state of California. Let's hope to 
turn it red. That'll take the left coast. Welcome aboard, Mark Reed. Good afternoon, Mark. How are you today? I'm doing good, Annie. Thank you for having me on your show. That was an amazing uh, conversation that you had with Burgess, and, and you're so right. The left coast, uh, the communist coast or socialist coast of California. Man, I, I can't tell you the last time I was out there, and gosh, it had to have been back in the 80s the last time I went out to California. I have no urge, even though lots of vast areas of California are absolutely beautiful, and you've got pockets of solid red areas in California. The fact that you've got Sacramento, L.A., and San Francisco controlling the rest of the state is a shame. Well, exactly. Uh, back in the 80s, actually, California wasn't that bad. You know, that's back when uh, Ronald Reagan was running running things as well. And, you know, today, California is one-tenth of America's population, but it has 48% of its welfare recipients. And one out of every four individuals are living in poverty. You know, the Democrats, uh, the progressive left always talk about income inequality. However, you have most of the wealthiest of people here being the fifth world's largest economy. But yet you have so many people that are living, like you said, one out of every four people are living in the poverty you know, rate. So this is the great example of what socialism becomes, eventually becomes. The middle class no longer exists. You have four and you have a handful of, of extremely wealthy people. Well, you know, you have an interesting uh, bio because I was looking at it last night. And you bought your first company at the age of 26. Hey, I beat you. I had mine at the age of 20. <laughs> I owned a tra- traveling <laughs> which is what got me to go out to California and other places. I beat you by a few years. Uh, But you're running for the 30th Congressional District in California. What area does that encompass? That's the West San Fernando Valley. So we're looking at uh, Toluca Lake area, Sherman Oaks, Encino, Tarzana, Woodland Hills, West Hills, Canoga Park, Reseda, uh, Winneka, Chatsworth, Porter Ranch, Granada Hills, and North Hills area. Well, that was an area that used to be like the breadbasket of California, wasn't it? Well, there was this, this street in the middle there. It was called the Canoga Corridor. And the Canoga Corridor is where all of your aviation, aerospace, medical uh, you know, research was done. Research and development and manufacturing was done. But in the last, since 1996, my opponent, when he became the congressman, they have shifted it over and, and closed out all of the contracts and the research and development and are turning it into retail. And uh, it's just destroyed the economy in the West San Fernando Valley. I mean, we have, we have probably 150,000 highly skilled, highly trained, highly paid uh, jobs that have left the valley. And this is what the progressives do. The progressives want to turn everybody into slaves rather than individuals working for a dollar. Uh, it's, it's a shame what has happened to California, and unfortunately, a lot of people are leaving California because they 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 can't live there anymore. Between the sanctuary cities, the homelessness, the rise in taxes, it has gotten out of hand. <clears throat> and what can we do about that? When you get to Congress, what can you do to help rein in the California running crazy? Well, one of the things that I'm going to be really addressing, and you brought it up, is the homelessness issue. 
you know, in the late 80s, the federal government pulled the funding for mental health care. And because of that, we're watching the repercussions of that nationwide, but really heavily here in the state of California and in the county that I reside in, which is Los Angeles County. The city of Los Angeles has 55,000 homeless individuals, but the county of Los Angeles has 120,000, which is, you know, bigger than most small towns. However, the feds need to come in, and this is what I propose because I have a very extensive plan on my website at markreedforcongress.com, which creates federal intake centers where the police departments can bring homeless people to that obviously have a, a severe mental health care problem and or a drug addiction. This 30-day intake center will completely assess an individual mentally and physically if they have a mental health care problem. The feds need to establish the short-term and long-term mental health care hospitals to be able to give them the services that they need and the follow-up and follow-through care that they need because they can be fixed, but it takes follow-up and follow-through care. You know, and then drug addiction is the same thing. We watch a lot in the inner cities where drug addiction, these 30-day, 60-day, 90-day plans, they really don't work. When you understand drug addiction, when somebody becomes a real full-on addict and their life has been taken over by drugs, it takes almost a year for the mind to start working right, just firing right physically. And then it takes another year to reprogram the person. Otherwise, if you do a 60-day, 90-day, even a six-month program, the recidivative rate just keeps cycling back through. They keep coming back. So I've developed a two-year plan, a three-year plan, and a five-year plan to really address drug addiction. And people will always ask the simple question, well, how are you going to pay for it? And I come right back and say, well, when you arrest somebody for some kind of a crime that's not associated directly with drugs, but it's associated with trying to get the money to buy drugs, you know, whether it to be a home invasion, a burglary, or a car theft, or even theft in the retail stores, you know, they'll get arrested, they'll get prosecuted, and it be put into jail and or prison. The prosecution time from arrest to sentencing to cities, almost $100,000 in itself. In the state of California, for minimum security, it's $78,000 for one year of prison. That alone is $178,000 for one year. And I, I'll look at the people and I say, how many times did they get busted and processed through the, the prison system? Three, four, five times in their lifetime? Why don't we finally make the hard decisions make a compulsory program and reform the judicial process and reform the prison systems in order to deal with the root causes. If unless we deal with the root causes, we're going to continue spending money after money after money after money, and we're not going to solve the problem. We are just going to create a worse problem. The proof of that is, is exactly what took place in San Francisco with Gavin Newsom spending $1.8 billion in trying to deal with the homelessness. And instead it has gotten so bad in San Francisco, literally on your cell phones, you have what they call an app to avoid human feces and drug needles and paraphernalia that are just piled up all over the streets anymore. And this is how bad it's gotten. We need people in office that can make the hard decisions, make the hard choices, and get to the root causes of problems and deal with those root causes with a very compassionate and honorable way. Well, then, Mark, I'm going to ask you a, a question because 
what you're talking about, the solution, this is better off implemented on a state level, not on a federal level. It can be done with federal funding. There's a the, uh, program that was implemented in Utah that cleaned up about 91% of the homelessness issues. Also up in Canada, they've had the same similar programs. The federal government has allocated out, I believe it's uh, eight, eight to $10 billion for mental health care, homelessness issues and drug rehabilitation and drug problems because of the fentanyl and opiate overdoses. Currently, uh, every three minutes, somebody overdoses from opiates or fentanyl. Then you get into the state issues where the state of California has allocated out $8 billion. The city of Los Angeles, yeah, on their uh, ballot, they, they have an HHH and H programs, which has $7 billion. The problem is nobody is putting together a program that is a compulsory program to work with all of the volunteer programs, whether they're faith, faith-based, private, the city-originated, county-originated, or state-originated. Somebody has finally has to take the initiative and the leadership and make hard decisions and put together a compulsory and a voluntary program that works with the voluntary program, show up, get the pilot program going in one county, and then create it to be a state-federal co-op. Hmm. Interesting. All right, well, another thing, because veterans is a huge issue. I live in the uh, heavy, heavy military area here, uh, so it's something near and dear to my heart, my father being a World War II veteran. Um, veterans also make up a large number of this homeless with women, female veterans, a growing sector of it. Um, so big, you big advocate sector. for remaining, remaining government-controlled, but when I talk to the veterans, they want to be able to say, no, I want to pick what doctor I go to. So why should the VA stay in the hands of government, and why can't it be then given to someone that will probably pay more attention, take less time uh, in waiting for veterans to get that care? I, I fully agree. I've, I've stated on several occasions the CHOICE program is kind of going in the right direction but not fully in the right direction because a veteran still has to fill out a bunch of uh, paperwork and kind of ask for the services. In my opinion, they've already earned the services. So it has to get to the point where the military creates a whole new boot-out program where all of their benefits and assessments are done six months prior to them leaving the service, and they're given what I call a platinum card, just like a Visa card or whatever. It has all of their benefits on there, and they can go to any doctor anywhere in the world and then the VA system becomes more of a paymaster for that particular card. There's absolutely no reason why our veterans can't go to any doctor or any facility they so choose to anywhere on the face of this planet without having to ask for and or apply for through more paperwork and bureaucracy. That's my opinion. That's what I would like to see, and that's what I would support. Now, if they have a new issue that shows up that is service-related, then they can go back to the VA, they get an assessment, and that new benefit would be put onto their card. And again, they can go to the VA system for services, or they can go anywhere they want in the world for services. And then the VA is just billed for it by that particular uh, hospital or service, uh, the service provider. Now, the VA system in my particular district, you know, there's one last standing uh, VA hospital out of three that used to be here. And the San Fernando Valley was built on the backs of the veterans returning from World War II. 
My father is, was also lieutenant commander, served in World War II, served in Korea. Four of my brothers served in Vietnam. Cousins are buried in Battleship, Arizona. One of my brothers is buried over in West L.A., and another brother is buried over in Hawaii. So we are a very strong military family as well. And the VA system is so cumbersome that most of my, all of my brothers, they really don't even deal with the VA anymore. They have their own private health care plans. So we really need to learn how to streamline and stop this whole process of veterans begging for, asking for their services or benefits they've already earned. There needs to be a new boot out program established where they're all assessed, they get all of their benefits put onto a card and they can go anywhere they want. I hope I hope that happens. I really would love to see that. You know, I have a, a friend of mine. His son just came out of boot camp, and he had a hard time just getting medical care straight out of boot camp. It's very difficult yep. for active members and for veterans to get the care they need. And these are men and women that volunteer to protect this nation. It's not conscript. It's not something forced into. But we're asking them to protect us, so we in turn should be able to protect them. Well, we need to honor the contract that we made with them. They volunteer. They earn their services. It's not a handout. It's not some kind of a welfare program. They've earned these services via a contract that they made by by volunteering their, themselves and putting themselves in harm's way. So why do we make it as difficult as possible? The VA system has turned into, I always say it's kind of like an insurance company. What is an insurance company constantly do? They deny, 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 deny services, hoping that you'll go away. Well, we should do better than that. Our veterans are the individuals, the three percenters in the world that have created our freedom and protect our freedom. I've always said that everybody stands on the whole concept of our Constitution of the United States, our Declaration of Independence. Well, unless we had that 3% fighting for and passing our freedoms down from generation to generation, the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence is just a piece of paper. What makes that piece of paper valuable, what makes that piece of paper stand out worldwide is the 3%, our veterans and our active military, protecting it. Well, that's a huge amen on that one. You know, um, we've got in the news, you see all over the place, the caravan coming up. I, I don't call it a caravan. I call it an invading army. And we have a, a broken immigration system. We have a wall that was promised that hasn't been built. Uh, we've got technology that we can use in place of a physical wall. And we also have 50 port, 50 states that are all ports of entry. Anyone with an airport, anyone with a seaport, or even a river port is a port of entry. And we now have this invading army coming up on our southern border, but we also have the problem with people that come in legally with visas and just disappear into the woodwork and never leave. So what would you be proposing once you get to Congress to help tighten the immigration system? Well, we need to start looking at the immigration policies. And Well, first of all, I am for the wall because the wall is not really an immigration issue anymore. The wall is a national security issue. So we have to have the wall. And you are correct. There are areas within, the, I believe, 1,700 miles that are really, a wall wouldn't be applicable. You know, so we can use modern tech surveillance, even drones and so forth, to be able to monitor and protect those areas because they're completely impassable anyways. 
but there are several, several miles, you know, over a thousand miles of that particular border that a wall would work extremely well, and we should build it. And it's a national security issue. Then you dive into the immigration policies. For over 100 years, we have failed, and Congress has failed, both Republican and Democrat, to address immigration reform. They always try to do it one giant bundle. And it doesn't work that way because one element of Congress or this element of Congress will say, no, we don't like that. We don't like so the whole thing fails. We need to address one thing at a time. The uh, work visa program, there's 14 work visa programs that need to be consolidated into one. And that's the biggest problem Congress has and the reason why they don't pass immigration reform, because we do need the seasonal work. We need, we need the uh, the the uh, hospitality industry work as well. And so we need to combine those and be able to allow individuals to come here for three months or six months, work and go home without a problem, without staying. That's one issue. The asylum request uh, um, at the border needs to stop as well. We should no longer take asylum requests at the border. 99% of these requests do not fit into the religious or political persecution categories. So we need to have real embassies in Mexico, Central America, and South America that any individuals, their lives are being threatened by persecution of religious or political persecution. They can create an asylum request there. And once their asylum request is processed, they can be flown over here. Because at this moment, that asylum request process is being completely abused by lawyers that are going down south, advising these individuals to say a particular couple of sentences, they're given the form, they're, they're, they're allowed to stay in the U.S. It's a catch and release program. That's got to stop. Then we got to do another one, merit-based immigration. We have to look at chain migration. We have to look at the lottery aspect of, of immigration. The visa program, you're absolutely correct. 60% of all of the illegal aliens in America are visa overstays. It's just not down south. 60% of illegal immigrants here, aliens here, are visa overseas. So we really have to re- reform that complete system in order to address that part of it. But again, like I said, the way to do it is one piece of legislation going through Congress, going through the Senate, and you get everybody on record voting for or against it. But you just get one piece through at a time. You build a block wall by, by putting one block in at a time. We can reform the immigration policies completely if we just take one piece at a time and put it through and get everybody on record of which way to do it. But that's what we have to do. What you're saying is so common sense. And and I'm certain a lot of people get into politics, especially in D.C., intending on using common sense. But I think they get corrupted by lobbyists and special interests. And um, I really think this, we, we need to address that, you know, concern about lobbyists. What would you do to address such well, an issue? Lobbyists is the constitutional right of the people to hire an individual to go to Washington, D.C. and advocate for their interest. However, everybody talks about campaign finance reform. I have a plan of campaign finance reform, which it would be really difficult to get through because you've got to get everybody to vote for it. However, that is, is that your district sets the amount of money that you can raise outside of your district. So an incumbent 
that's doing his job right, okay, everybody will back him in their district. So let's say he raised, just for numbers, he raises a half a million dollars in his district. Well, outside of the district, via the lobbyists and so forth, he can raise a half a million dollars. Now, let's say this particular guy is no longer doing the job for his people in his district, and the people say, you know what, we don't like you anymore. We're going to uh, finance your challenger, okay? So they finance the challenger. So the incumbent only raises uh, 100000 Challenger weight raises the five hundred thousand. Okay, the incumbent can now only get a hundred thousand from the lobbyists and outside of the district. This will hold all incumbents, all elected individuals, to the district and the people of the district. Right now, it's so difficult for a challenger to challenge an incumbent because he has the bully pulpit. He has the ability to raise tremendous amounts of money outside of the district from lobbyists, unions, and so forth, that it's near impossible to get this guy out of office or gal out of office. So common sense has to be brought back. I mean, Ronald Reagan said this once before, that if only the Ivy League and the rich are running the government and nobody from the common world or the average person is in there, we will run this country amok. And this is what's happening today. Common sense can prevail so long as the person has the ability to implement it. Now, I, you know, I've been the national rep for American Indians for 15 years. I'm Mohawk and Apache, and I do have the proof, unlike Elizabeth Warren. Uh, so <laughs> I've, been, I've, been the, I've been the national rep for American Indians, and I've been recruited by KCET. I was recruited by the Screen Actors Guild to get things done. And even though I am a conservative constitutionalist, you know, and these are very liberal organizations. I still got things done because I know how to reach across the aisle. I know how to bring people together. I know how to identify a problem, get everybody on board with the solution to a problem, and I let them all go home claiming that they solved it. And that's all that matters is identifying the problem, fixing the problem, and you let everybody go and claim the solution. I remember a, a, a famous line in a, in a movie I saw once years back, and I loved it. And that is, is everybody fits into two categories. Category A, people who get things done. Category B, people who claim credit for the things that get done. It's far easier to be in category A because there's far less competition. Mark, it's a pleasure having you on the show. Uh, people can find you, Mark Reed, for Congress. You're running for Congress out of the 30th District in California. I wish you a lot of good luck. Uh, the election is one week from today. So my fingers yeah. are crossed, and God bless. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at Mark Reed 1776 or on Facebook, Mark Reed 2018. But we're looking for a win. This is one of the un, unfollowed districts. Uh, which is going to be a surprise district win uh, for this administration and for the United States of America. So keep your eyes open for it. It's going to be a national story. Well, God bless. Right. I wish you a lot of good luck. Mark, Mark Reed for Congress. Good luck, sir. God bless in Jesus' All right. name. Bye-bye. All right, we're down to our last uh, three minutes here, and uh, just got information from Blog Talk Radio. They've changed the feature. When you tune into the show on Blog Talk Radio, it no longer auto-plays. They've cut that feature. You now have to manually hit the play button. 
So this is what is going on. So, Kel, I know you've got your show coming up. So let your listeners know you've got to hit the auto. You have to hit the play button now. And that is what's going on with Blog Talk Radio. Thank you for letting us know about that change. Meanwhile, we are having problems getting listeners to tune in. We've needed that like a hole in the head. Anyway, uh, I will not be here uh, live on this coming Friday or Tuesday. I will have some of the best of Annie up on the on there. I'm having my surgery on Thursday, and I was told to lay low. I must follow doctor's orders, otherwise I think he'll beat me up. <laughs> anyway, it's nothing <laughs> serious. It's just some surgery on my eyes. And uh, we will be back uh, on the 9th. And I've already got shows booked almost all the way through the end of November already. So people are lining up to come on. So hopefully we'll keep you uh, thrilled and chilled. So, Curtis, I say <laughs> that's all for now, right? Yep, just for now. So, Y'all come back. Okay. So, well, make sure you get out there and vote. So until then, I say good night, God bless, and stay safe. And I leave you with our closing song, When the Roll is Called Up Yonder. <laughs>